Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the pew in front of you. If you're using one of those, it's page 1007. Mark chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 11, then we're going to go back and look at chapter 10. But Mark 11 is... Uh, kind of the focal point of not just uh, our text today, but Palm Sunday. And some of you may be sitting here and heard, have heard that before, or maybe you haven't heard that before, and you're going, what in the world is that? Because it seems to me, based on experiencing the weather in the Midwest, that it is the opposite of anything to do with palm trees. And some of you are dreaming about palm trees. How many of those are you? And some of you come from palm trees, right? <laughs> Um, but Palm Sunday really has to do with something known as the triumphant entry of Jesus and is crucial to our understanding of the significance of the, this week that we call Holy Week with Palm Sunday, with Good Friday and with Resurrection Sunday. All of these tied together, um, but more importantly, all of these more than just tying together into this week, it ties into the very fabric of why God sent Jesus in the first place. That you and I are in need of more than ourselves. Ultimately, we need Jesus. And so, here's what you're going to do. Hey, um, you're going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to say this first. You're going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to say, you can't do it alone. Do it right now. You can't do it alone. Some of you, that may be hard to hear. Now, the second thing, you're going to turn to your neighbor and you're going to say, you need Jesus. Okay? Now, here's the thing, church family. You know what? Um, you just began to share the gospel with someone. Did you recognize that? As simple as that is, the good news, which is what gospel means, is simply this. In order for there to be good news, there's bad news. The bad news is you can't do it alone. Because you're a sinner separated from God. But the good news is that there is one who has paid the price for you. It's Jesus. You know how simple that is? I, uh, I, I listened to a video this last week from Ed Stetzer, and it was very sad to me. And he was talking about evangelism. And uh, in this, their, uh, their group did a survey of around 4,000 people 
who claim the name of Jesus. They say, I believe in the name of Jesus to be saved. Uh, I claim to be a follower of Jesus. I claim to be a Christian. And in this poll, one of the questions they asked is they said, in the last six months, how many times have you shared your faith? 60% of those 4,000 people said zero. And so they thought, well, maybe... Instead, uh, maybe they're inviting people to church because there's many people who uh, function in a way that say, uh, I'm, I'm not going to share with people directly, but I'm just going to invite them to church and let uh, Pastor Matt tell them what the good news is. Okay. So they asked that question. 50% of those people, when asked, how many times did you invite someone to church? Zero. In six months' time. Okay. Now, the reason it's so sad to me is because if we believe that Jesus is the only way, and Jesus said this in John fourteen six, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If we believe that, and we believe that there is one way to eternity, it's through Jesus. <laughs> it's in Christ. We hold the keys within our own possession. Of the greatest gift given to mankind. And part of the celebration of Holy Week is for us to celebrate the very reason that you and I can have hope. The very reason that we can rejoice regardless of the season. Do we want the world around us to experience that same hope? Now, Along these same lines, we're focusing on this uh, idea of Jesus as the servant king. And um, oftentimes, when we think about this, it's not really two things we put together in our uh, Western idea of what a king or a ruler would be. A servant king. And yet what we're going to see is Jesus himself describes this way. But I want to ask you a question and just give you a chance to kind of respond uh, out loud, right where you're at. If you're online, you could type a response in the comments. But in general, what kind of king or ruler are you longing for? When you think of someone who is successful in their ruling, who is diligent in their reigning, who is someone you want ruling over you, what are the qualities that come to mind? Just shout them out. A caring for people, okay? Honorable. Just. Responsible. Orderly. Humble. Strong. Honest. Faithful. Wise. Loving. Caring. Merciful. Okay? We could go on for a while with this. Now, here's the hard truth. I think if we're really honest, there's some of those, I really believe you guys are honest in that. But there's also a piece of us that likes the answer that we know is probably right. Where, yeah, because this is who the Bible describes God as, and we want God to be the ultimate authority of our lives, and so we want a king who's going to resemble these things. But if we're really honest, the way we live, the way we function, the way we think, oftentimes what we didn't hear mentioned 
is I really want a ruler that does things the way I think they should be done. Right? Uh, You know what? As I evaluate whether a ruler is fit for the job they're doing, whose standards do I often evaluate that by? It's my own. Sure, I might say that my standards are rooted in Scripture, but... Really, at the end of the day, there's a huge part of us that is motivated and moved and impacted by what we want. Because intrinsically, you and I are selfish people. We just are. And we see that in our marriages. We see that in our parenting. We see that in the church. We see that in the community, in the workforce. Everywhere you look, you are faced directly with selfish people because you are one too. You need Jesus. Now, as we jump into this, what I want to unpack is the reality of not the king we want, but more importantly, the king that we need. And at the end of the day, the very clear articulation of what Scripture reveals to us is that the king we need is Jesus. The ruler we need, the authority we need in our life, in the church, in the world as a whole, to bring cohesion and clarity to God's purpose and will, is Jesus. We're going to see just how this unfolds in Mark chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, as we unpack this today, I pray that you would open our eyes to see clearly the king that we need, not just the king that we want. God, I pray that you would help us to see what Jesus has fulfilled in and of himself and the very reason that we can have hope beyond this world, a hope that extends into eternity. Father, may our eyes be rooted in the very one who has brought about salvation on our behalf. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we think about this, there's several things going on here in Mark chapter 11. Now, one of the things you will notice if you read all four Gospels, the Gospels there I'm talking about are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four, first four books of the New Testament in your Bible. And you're going to find differing, different accounts of the same stories taking place. And uh, oftentimes you have uh, different uh, writers penning this, but you also have different audiences that are receiving this. And so if you've heard this story before, you may look at the Gospel of Mark and you go, well, it says a colt, it didn't, doesn't say a donkey. Well, yes, it, it was implied in the story. And if you read the other Gospel accounts, you're going to find that this wasn't a, a colt, a horse colt. It is actually a colt of a donkey that Jesus sends the disciples to get. And so right out of the gate, when we think about Jesus as the servant king, we recognize that Jesus enters unexpectedly. Jesus enters unexpectedly. If we're honest and we think about a king's grand entrance amongst his people, what do we think about? Maybe a white stallion or a chariot made of gold. And the king rides in and everybody cheers. Huzzah! The king reigns. The king rules. Look how mighty he appears upon his mighty steed. Now, surprisingly enough, culturally, it actually wasn't that uncommon for a dignitary to enter into a town on a donkey. And in fact, it was often seen from the perspective of someone who was with the people. At their level, humble, someone who wanted to be there present, not just overarching. And so while we think about this donkey as an animal of burden, and there is great significance in that, there's also great significance in the imagery portrayed as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now there's further significance to this, and it's actually found in Zechariah ch- uh, chapter 9. And if you read in the other gospel accounts, Jesus actually uh, is, is quoted saying this. You need to do it this way to find a cult of, of a donkey uh, to fulfill the prophecy. And so this becomes one of many uh, what are called messianic prophecies in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Where it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, everyone say king. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, for Jerusalem, we have to understand that this prophecy is the very hope of the nation's future. This, right here. Throughout Scripture, we see in Israel patterns of idolatry and unfaithfulness that brings about the judgment of God and a calling of His people back to obedience. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? We can resonate with that. At least I can resonate with that a lot. It's pattern 
And yet here in Zechariah, there's a couple of significant. The word rejoice here. I love this. One commentator said the word rejoice here literally means to twirl. To twirl. And when I read that, I automatically, the first picture that came to mind uh, was my oldest daughter because she just loves to dance anywhere she's at. And she loves to do that out of a joy. There's a joy in her, an exuberance that comes out through that. And so the call here of rejoice greatly. You think about the imagery for a second. The word shout in Zechariah, shout aloud, signifies a battle cry in victory. The one coming to you is righteous, having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. A victory cry, a shout. Now, all right, I'm curious, how many of you are, um, are March Madness fans? Okay. Not very many of you, actually. How many of you like sport, a sport of some kind? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you get a little too excited sometimes and yell at your TV? <laughs> so my wife gets entertained when I, I don't like a lot of sports, but I like college sports. And specifically, I really like college basketball. And I get worked up. I get really worked up. And uh, my wife will make fun of me for it. Uh, but one distinct time I remember that stands out to me uh, was uh, 2000. It was 2005, and it was the last time that uh, the Fighting Illini were in the championship game. And I still remember that because I'm still bitter about it. Okay, <laughs> we got beat by North Carolina. It wasn't fun. But the the most pivotal game in that series was a game they were playing against Arizona. And they were down by 15 points with less than two minutes left. And they came back to tie it and ultimately then ended up winning that game and advancing on. And the reason I remember this so much is because my dad and I are watching this game and my youngest brother Kyle was very little at the time. And we got really loud. And I remember my mom continuing to come into the living room and saying, if you wake up this baby, you guys are going to deal with him. But I, the reason this, this sticks out to me is because when I think of a victory cry, I think of something that's so emotionally invoked that you can't help but scream, victory! To the point that you can hardly speak. And how many of us, honestly, when we think about what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, are compelled to the point of dancing and shouting the victory cry. Now, when we put this in context with the Jerusalem and the people that are gathering and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're laying their coats out in the branches where we get the, the significance of Palm Sunday as Jesus enters in. To them, His victory was coming and the promised Messiah who was going to free them from the oppression of their people of, had finally arrived. Here's where we end up with the people's perception versus reality. There's great significance in the word Hosanna. Everyone say Hosanna. 
Hosanna is actually a word translated from Hebrew into Greek. And the significance of this word means save us. Save us. Now, what you may not recognize is this is actually taken from Psalms called the Psalm called the Psalm of Ascent in Psalm 118. This is where we see this. So this would have been a song that people would have been familiar with. And this is what the song says. Many of you know the first line of this song. It's actually not the first line. It's in the middle of it. But we say it. This actually let's say it. Let's say it together. This first line. Let's say it together. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But then this is what continues. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, there it is. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, near the top of that, right after let us rejoice and be glad in it, that word save us is the word translated from Hebrew into Greek that says Hosanna. Hosanna. A cry for help. Now, at this point, the, 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 the Jews were being oppressed by the Roman people. And when we read a passage like this, we would do well to ask the question, why are the people crying out, save us? What reason would they have for longing for salvation? And what salvation were they longing for? And this is where, all right, this is where reading and knowing the whole of the Bible is really important, church family. Because we can't know the significance of why they would be saying, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, save us. Unless we know what they've been through. So, in the next five minutes, I want to give you just an overview of what has happened. Now, in Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. We see God create his people, his people sin. God redeems his people. God sets his people apart through Israel. He creates in them a nation. They're in captivity in Egypt. He brings them out of captivity. They wander in the desert because they act in disobedience to God. Then God raises up Joshua, this young leader who leads them into the promised land. They conquer that land. But from the very beginning, we see glimpses of where they're still going to be prone to fall back into their old ways of thinking. They're still going to be prone to come back to the place that they were before. And regardless of the specific commands God gave them, they did just that. And they decided to go their own way. Then we enter this period of the judges where God raises up leaders and they go on this cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, silence over and over and over and over again. And we come out of the period of the judges and we enter into Samuel. 
And the people say, we want a king. Now, I want to hear you say that in a minute. I'm going to count three, and I want you to say prominently, we want a king. Okay? One, two, three. That's good. And God, God says, here's what's going to happen if you have an earthly king. It's not going to be good. I, I am the one you should serve. They don't care. So God raises up kings and then we enter the kings and the chronicles and we see this pattern of good kings and bad kings. And there was some good kings, but a whole lot of bad kings. Ultimately, anytime power and authority is involved, sin rears its ugly face. Then from here, all of a sudden, the nation of Israel as a whole is taken into Babylonian captivity. This is enters in the book of Daniel and the book of Daniel. <clears throat> we see a wrestling because their whole way of life has been turned upside down. And then uh, in Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonians are overtaken by the Persians. Now the Persians are ruling and reigning. And then in Ezra and Nehemiah, you have Cyrus the Great, this Persian king, who decrees that Israel as a whole can go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. Now, at this point, if you're reading in your Bibles... This is where the story kind of ceases for a while. How many of you have heard the word intertestamental period? Ah, this is good. Here's what happens, church. In between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there's 400 years. There's 400 years. And in that 400 years, it's not that stuff ceased, it's that we can see historically what took place. And you'll see some of these things that look familiar from your school history textbooks. In 331 B.C., Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the Persians. Now, if you don't know Alexander the Great, he was a, a guy who was all about Greek mythology and a way of life. And in fact, it's at this point that the Hebrew scriptures are translated into Greek. And you get what's called the Septuagint. Some of you may have heard that before, but not known the connection. This was it. But when you think about Alexander the Great and this rule and reign of the Persians, the Greek way of life was a very humanistic, secular worldview. It's not good. In 175 BC, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes is a Greek ruler, one of the worst rulers the Jewish people ever encountered. And he persecuted the Jewish people. He profaned and completely dis, dis, dismembered and the, the temple. And that led to the Maccabean revolt, which was a group of radical Jewish people who said, we are going to cleanse this temple and fight back for what is rightfully ours. Then in 63 BC, Rome basically came and forced Antiochus to give up control. Forced the Greek governments to give up control. And at that point, the Jews were under Roman rulership. Now, I give you that full scope and sequence of what's taken place. Because when you hear that, you go, I would be crying, save us too. It makes sense that this is what the nation of Israel had longed for. Some of you here today may feel like your lives resemble some of Israel's history. Just when you think things can't get worse, bam, another hit. 
so overwhelmed, beaten down, bruised, tired. You look for something new. You hope. You yearn. You may even pray, save us. Save us. And yet, here's the truth of this, church family. The king we need is often not the king we want. Who are we convinced we are welcoming when we welcome Jesus into our life? The Jewish people were convinced they were welcoming the new king who was going to overthrow the Romans and bring peace to their land for the first time in so long. Save us! Who are we convinced we're welcoming? Do we convince ourselves that when we welcome Jesus, that we're welcoming one who's just going to bring stability to our whole life? Are we determined Jesus will give us some authority or higher class status on this earth? If you've had those thoughts, you aren't alone. Jesus' own disciples struggled with this. And so I want you to flip back briefly to Mark chapter 10 for a moment. Because we've seen Jesus entered in an unexpected way, but I want to further unpack this concept that the king we need is often not the king we want. Mark chapter 10, and here's the whole of what's going on here. Jesus' disciples are talking amongst themselves. And understand that in verses 32 through 34, Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen to him. Which I just laugh every time. Jesus says this so many times throughout his teachings, and it just goes over the disciples' heads. And so Jesus has just gotten gotten done telling them, hey, we're going to enter Jerusalem and the son of man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests. They're going to condemn him, condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him, spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus literally said that. Here's what's going to happen (laughs) in the next verse. Here's what his disciples do. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Seriously. And he said to them, I love the patience of Jesus here. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your left and one at, your right, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? To be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. What, what are we going to get? And then in, in verse 41... I love this because you just have to assume the rest of the disciples are thinking the same thing as what has been asked. uh, When the ten heard it, they they began to be indignant at James and John. I can't believe he asked that question. Can you believe these guys? They're thinking it. These guys have been with Jesus for his whole ministry and they've become convinced he is the Messiah. The one who will save them. So there's a piece of this. They're definitely assuming the same thing the rest of Jerusalem is assuming in chapter 11. And they're thinking, we have it in with the, with the king. 
We've got it good. We're going to have power and authority and status. We've got this. Verse 42, Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your, what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be, what? Slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Here's the reality, church family. The king we need is often not the king we want. What I really want, God, what I really want is someone to take over my financial struggles. What I really want, God, is someone to give me my earthly kingdom. What I really want, God, is someone to give me that beach retirement I've been dreaming about. What I really want, God, is someone to turn this country into the place I want it to be. What I really want, God, is someone to hold my enemies accountable for their actions. We want a prosperity king. We want a punisher king. We want a king like us. And God says, hail to the servant king who comes to give his life as a ransom for many. Who came to give his life for you. If you seek to follow Jesus, you follow a king. But more importantly, you follow a servant who walked in obedience to his father's will. May we celebrate this and anticipate the reminder of hope that we celebrate all this week. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing one last song together. And here's the, here's the, here's the reality, church family. Jesus entered on that day. We celebrate Him coming into Jerusalem because He accomplished the very thing we could never accomplish. A sacrifice that we could not give. If you have never made a decision to believe in the name of Jesus, the sacrifice He made is sufficient and the only thing that will save you. Know that you leave here today making a decision to follow Jesus or not to. There's no middle ground. And if you make a decision to follow Jesus, I promise you it will change your life, but not in the way you think. And so as we celebrate this and we think about this, those of you who have already made this decision, our prayer should be, make me more like Jesus. More like Jesus. That each one of us would faithfully become less of who we are and more of who He's called us to be. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in your church, around the world. We long for Jesus to return. We long for him to reign on earth. We long for this to happen, but right now, Lord, we long that people would know that there is satisfaction in the servant king.
There is comfort and hope and peace and joy in the servant king who has given everything that we might have life. Remind us of this hope today and may it instill in us a joy and anticipation of what's to come. In Jesus' name, amen.